Hello, and welcome to the So Curious Podcast, presented by the Franklin Institute. I'm DeVoe Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills, and we are your hosts. This whole season is all about the science of music, and we hope you're feeling wild because today we're exploring the wonderful world of animals. Ooh, and first we're going to learn the hows and whys behind the music that we hear out in nature. So we're going to be joined by researcher Dr. Stephen Nowicki to learn about songbirds. And then we're going to have an interview with Dr. Lori Marino, who is going to tell us all about whales and dolphin calls. And then we'll be chatting with David Rothenberg, an artist who's been described as an interspecies musician, about his work collaborating on music with wildlife. Oh, all right. So, Bay, what's your favorite animal sound? Mm, birds is kind of like an easy answer, but I want to give something a little bit more thoughtful. Elephants is cool. Oh, elephants is so cool. Elephants is very, very cool. Uh, what about you? That's a great one. I was just at the zoo, and I did get to hear penguin noises, and they are jarring. They sound like a horn, like one of those clown horns, you know? They sound like that. Oh, they hilarious. just, like, open their neck, and they're like... Uh, and you're like, <laughs> where did that come from? You are a foot long. Like, how yeah. did you do that? Well, okay, so at least in terms of the birds, we have someone who can help us on the bird front because we are now joined by Dr. Stephen Nowicki. Steve, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. And can you do us a favor and just tell us about yourself? What do you do? Feel free to brag for a few minutes. Well, I'm a professor at uh, Duke University. I study animal communication, animal signaling behavior, and I've been doing it for a long time. Actually, I'm a failed musician, to tell you the truth, because <laughs> I went to college to study classical music and realized that that was pretty competitive. And I found biology uh, along the way and fell in love with that instead. No such thing as failure. Yes, right because it brought be. you here. Yeah. Let's get right into it. Why do uh, songbirds sing? Well. To tell you the truth, it's mostly about fighting and flirting. If it's a male, uh, which is most of the birds in the North Temperate Zone that sing are the males, he's basically saying, I own this place, keep out the other males. But he's also, with that same song, saying to females who hear him, hey, I'm an available male. Why don't you come over and mate with me? So those are the two main things. It's not much to say, but it really both are very important things in the life of an animal. And so what bird species specifically does your research focus on? Oh, I work with song sparrows and swamp sparrows. They're beautiful songsters. The song sparrow, especially as its name implies. Uh, but there's these birds that everybody who's learning birding calls, you know, LBBs, little brown birds. They're hard to distinguish. They're not very colorful. They're somewhat secretive. Although song sparrows, you'll hear a lot. And song sparrows actually have increasingly become a suburban and even an urban bird. So, you know, you can hear song sparrows pretty much anywhere uh, through the East Coast, up through Canada, down through the West Coast. And do they understand their songs as music or is it just communications for them? Well, it's hard to know how to answer that question. You know, when we listen to music, is it just music or is it speaking to us? I mean, I'd like to think that when we listen to music, there's communication going there, and we're just experiencing it in kind of an aesthetic way. Uh, you know, people have argued that bird songs are a kind of bird aesthetic, and in that case, you might say it's music. But the interesting thing is that some birds, like a song sparrow or even a swamp sparrow, when we hear them, 
they sound really beautiful to our ears. And we, we're tempted to say, oh, that's beautiful music. But there are other birds. The yellow-headed blackbird comes to mind out west that when you hear them sing, it's like really awful. <laughs> In fact, the yellow-headed blackbird's song has been described as a rusty gate opening. You know, sort of really screechy, miserable stuff. But hey, to the female yellow-headed blackbird, it's beautiful. It's BS. I was going to say it's beautiful flirting, it's right? Marvin Gaye, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Bay and I love to grill our guests on things and if they are <laughs> nature or nurture because we're trying to get to the bottom of that in all walks of life. When it comes to baby songbirds, are they born knowing the songs that they sing or do they have to learn them? Oh, most definitely they have to learn them. But it's an interesting nature-nurture thing. So a young bird, if that young bird doesn't hear adults singing when it's young, in a pretty narrow window, the first couple of months of life, it never will make a normal song. It'll sing something when it grows up, but it'll be just weird. So they have to hear adults. But what is kind of the uh, nature part of it is that they have to hear adults for many species of the correct species. In other words, you know, if a song sparrow hears nothing but swamp sparrow, it might as well hear nothing and vice versa. So somehow they've got genetically encoded what the possible songs that they should learn are, but they still have to hear adults. And then actually, just like the way young humans learn, they go through this gradual period of development, like babbling and young humans learning speech. And it goes much faster, but they'll start making twittery little sounds. And eventually, over the course of you know a month or so, they'll get closer and closer until they finally nail it and start reproducing the songs that they heard when they were young. Oh, wow. And can you tell when it's like a baby singing and it's not quite what it should be? Yeah, oh, absolutely. As it turns out, my wife's also a scientist and she studied song development for many years and she'll tell you how old the bird is. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's impressive. But, you know, out in the field, you'll hear this in the early spring. The young birds were born last year, say, in February or March, when they just start singing. It's soft. It's not very structured. And a bird watcher, you know, somebody who's experienced will hear it and say, well, that's not quite right. And it's because they're listening to a bird that's still practicing, still getting it right. Mm. Uh, do, do bird songs change over time or do they kind of stay the same in terms of patterns or tones or... Well, let's look at two timescales. They used to be thought to not change over the life of the bird. In other words, when the young bird learned its song, the thought was, that's it. It's not going to change for the rest of its life. Now, more recently, people have understood that actually songs do change over life in an interesting way. Thinking of some work by a former person who worked with me now at Cornell named Matt Zippel, who has shown that as songbirds age, their voice gets older, just like in humans. I mean, we're pretty good at listening to somebody and being able to say, well, that's a young person or that's an old person. Well, it turns out, same thing with birds. So over the life of a bird, literally its voice can senesce. And the other birds, I mean, we've done tests showing the other birds respond to that. Now, interestingly, like speech, over a long period of time, songs will change culturally. So Liz Derryberry has done this work out in the Western mountains with these white crowned sparrows where she's had historical recordings from 30 years ago and asked the modern birds, hey, what do you think of these? And it turns out when you ask experimentally the current birds to discriminate between songs recorded 30 years ago and songs recorded this week, 
they respond more to the songs recorded this week as if they don't quite understand that those older songs are the same. It'd be like a human going back to say old England and you know listening to Shakespearean language. I mean, you could kind of understand it, but it would sound pretty weird to us. Wow. Is there the same sense geographically like we have, how we can all speak English, but different forms depending on if you live in the South or the North, East, West? Exactly the same thing. It's because of culture differences, what the evolutionary biologists would call cultural drift. So if you record, say, song sparrows in northwestern Pennsylvania, which is a place we've done a lot of work, and sparrow songs from the Hudson Valley of New York, about 500 or so kilometers distant, the birds in northwestern Pennsylvania barely recognize the Hudson Valley birds. That's so interesting. Because it's geographically different. So they have bird accents, basically. They have bird <laughs> accents. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Processing that. I'm picturing like the New York birds <laughs> with like New York accents. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about mockingbirds. How do mockingbirds mimic? How does that function work? Oh, that's such a great question because it is a question that people have wondered about for decades because most birds just learn their own species song. But some birds and mockingbirds would be the one that most people recognize. They can learn all sorts of stuff. Starlings do that too. Indian hill minas are pets that people can train to speak like humans. Interestingly, as far as is known, the vocal tracks of these birds are anatomically the same. It's not like they're built differently. Their brains, at least anatomically, are the same. But for some reason, the brains of those mockingbirds are more open. They can learn a bunch of stuff. And so where people are working on that right now is they're trying to literally ask, can we find genomic differences, something about the way that those brains work that's different, that makes mockingbirds more open to what they can learn or how long they can learn it. This is actually quite interesting, not only if you're interested in birds and birdsong, but actually it's an interesting problem in neurobiology because imagine if we could figure out why a mockingbird can be so plastic in its learning and got that down to some level of mechanism and say, hey, Maybe we've learned something that could help people, say, recover from a stroke or a head injury. That's a great segue. What have we been able to learn about human brains and behaviors by studying bird communication? So there has been a long interest and, you know, funding from places like the National Institutes of Health to work on birdsong learning because it does have such parallels to human learning. And that's pretty unique. There are other animals that learn, like whales and dolphins. There's some good work out of Germany showing bats learn their sounds, but it's pretty rare. And birds are something that's tractable, so you can work with it in the field in the lab. And so people have been studying bird brains for a while precisely because they're interested in what the underlying neural mechanisms are that might be associated with how humans speak. It's a little bit of a stretch in some dimensions, but when you get down to how the neural circuitry develops the role of hormones in that development, you know, down to the level of how even neurotransmitters work. And now genomic differences, that's sort of a grail out there that people are looking for to see what we can learn more about our own language and how we learn it and how we maintain it from looking at songbirds. Who knew? And you look at that song sparrow, it might be contributing something to the future of biomedicine. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I am curious because I am famously a night person, not a morning person, and I hate waking up early. But I will say one thing that is nice about waking up in the morning is the birds that are singing and chirping. 
So why? Why do they sing in the morning? Yeah, that's another question that still has a number of possible answers. I'll give you some hypotheses. I'll give you some reasons people have suggested. One longstanding hypothesis is that in general, that's when the air is still. There's little wind, and that just helps the songs transmit better. So the idea is sing in the morning because that's when you're going to be heard best. That's when your song's going to go the farthest without getting blown away by the wind or distorted by noise. Another possibility is that for most songbirds, that's when the females are most fertile. <laughs> so, hey, if you're out there trying to attract a female, if you're trying to get her interested in mating with you, go for it in the morning because that's when, frankly, it matters. <laughs> um, because she'll lay an egg every day and you want to get in there when she's most fertile. Now, there's mixed evidence for these sorts of things. I'll tell you another recent idea that a former student I work with has got some data on. This is a guy named Jason Din. He tested the idea that what the birds are doing in the morning is warming up. So imagine you're a singer or a performer or a gymnast or whatever. And before you go on and do your performance, you do your warm-up exercises, whether it's scales or your dance routine or whatever, because then you're going to be doing your best, your best performance when it really matters. And so Jason actually has found, and other people are now finding this as well, that when birds start singing in the morning, their performance, if you will, you know, how well they sing the song they're trying to sing gets better over the first little while. So that when, you know, the sun is up and everybody's into it, they're all at the top of their... They're, they're performance their... ready. <laughs> yeah. When I wake up in the morning, you just get the raspiness. Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, bird song? You know, I usually don't have favorites, but I'll have to say that if I had to choose a song, it would be the song of the Viri. So the Viri is a kind of thrush, and there's wood thrushes and gray cheek thrushes and hermit thrushes, and the Viri is in that group of thrushes, and they all have these beautiful, metallic-y, flute-like, lilting songs and they're kind of special because these birds, unlike the ones that wake you up in the morning, they <laughs> tend to sing in the evening. And so it's like if you're going for a walk and the sun is starting to set, you'll just hear these flute-like sounds coming out of the woods. And it's it's really magical. It's really a special sound. It's like the George Michael of birds. Yeah, the nighttime birds, <laughs> the sultry yeah, yeah. birds. Those are my kind of birds. I like that. <laughs> This was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Bay and I on yeah, the So Curious podcast. Yeah, a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing all the insights. And thank you for coming on So Curious. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. See ya. Thanks again to Dr. Nowicki for taking the time to speak with us. Love me some bird calls. And now we are going to go from up in the air to under the sea. We are speaking with Dr. Lori Marino about whales and dolphins. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Dr. Marino, thank you so much for being here on the So Curious podcast. How's it going? Hey. It's going very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Sure. So, again, my name's Lori Marino, and I'm a neuroscientist by training. I'm currently the president of the Whale Sanctuary Project, and we are creating a sanctuary for captive beluga whales and orcas in a beautiful cove in Nova Scotia. 
Ooh. That'll be so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, can we come? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you, you've done a lot of work investigating the whale and dolphin intelligence, right? So we want to hear all about your findings and, like, how you define intelligence. Well, you know, intelligence is one of these words that if you ask a thousand people, you will get a thousand different answers. Yeah. <laughs> There's no consensus, but I think there is some general agreement that it has something to do with how you process information, how quickly you can, or how much information you can at a given time, or the depth of that processing, and so on and so forth. So that's a general definition that holds for all animals, including humans. We have a lot of information on dolphin and whale and porpoise behavior and observation, how dolphins and whales act under various circumstances. Intelligence is not just, oh, well, they can do arithmetic, but (laughs) their intelligence is really bound up with their sociality. They're cultural. So what I mean by that is that many dolphins and whales have learned behavioral traditions that are passed on from one generation to the next. And that's a definition of culture. And that culture can be a way of obtaining food. It could be a way of socializing. Just like with humans, going to different communities of dolphins and whales, you will find different cultural practices And that means that they're very, very good at long-term memory and learning from each other and observation. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I've always known about myself that I've never been very, like, book smart, school smart, like math. But I've always said I'm, like, street smart. And I'm glad to hear that whales and dolphins are also (laughs) street smart. I love that. And socially smart. (laughs) And so we want to talk about humpback whale songs. Are they as beautiful as everyone says that they are, those hearing those songs in in life? Oh, my gosh. It's just so, it's eerie. It's moving. And does it have rhythm? Like whatever we're going to use to quantify something as a song, right? Like Like a pattern or something like that. They have a lot of the same characteristics as what we call music. Rhythm, changes in inflection. Beat drops. uh, (laughs) Beat drops, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that dolphins and whales make sound. One way is through whistles. One way is through clicks. Another way is through percussive sounds. And the neat thing about them is that they can make all these different kinds of sounds at the same time so they can combine them. Different modalities, in a sense. Like an orchestration, basically. Yeah, exactly. My knowledge goes as far as finding Nemo and finding Dory with Dory doing the whale songs and noises. But I got to know, do they change over time like language does with us? Humpback whale songs do change over time, but they change in a systematic way. So a whale song is sung one year and then maybe the next year it'll be pretty much the same. But like one part, that's a change could be at the end or in the middle And over time, like a game of telephone, that whole song is replenished or or changed. Now, do either dolphins or whales respond to human music? Like, could I play Mm. one of my songs for a dolphin? That's so interesting. I don't know the answer to that because I don't know if really good studies have been done like that. 
I can tell you this much. They understand something about rhythm because there have been some studies where they've been asked to mimic human speech. And even though they're not very, very good at making the sounds of human speech because they have a different vocal system, they're really good at mimicking the rhythm of it. So if I said, hey, one, two, three, and four, they might say, eh, 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 eh. Wow. They get that. Or I've interacted with them in captivity when you can use your hand to create a rhythm and they will follow that and anticipate your next move. So they get rhythm. Now, for our listeners, can you explain how scientists gather information about whale and dolphin sounds in the wild and and also versus in captivity? Yeah. So in the wild, they will typically do field research where they will follow a group And when they find the group that they're studying, they will drop a hydrophone into the water or an array of hydrophones, which is basically an underwater microphone. And they're able to capture and record their vocalizations or their sounds that way. How big are these hydrophones? They're not necessarily exceedingly big. But some people use arrays, and that's important because it helps you to triangulate where is the sound coming from. And in captivity, pretty much the same thing. You drop a hydrophone into the tank and you record their sounds. And the thing of it is, is that once you record sounds, then you can do lots of fancy things with them because right now we're using machine learning and AI and all kinds of ways of analyzing the sounds they make to find patterns that maybe we, with our brains, cannot necessarily find. Mm. And that's pretty exciting. So that is like a perfect segue into my next question, which is you were featured in the 2013 documentary Blackfish about killer whale captivity. From what you've studied, why do you think humans undervalue animal intelligence? Oh, I think we undervalue animal intelligence for a couple of reasons. One, for very, very deep reasons, meaning that we like to be on top. We like to feel that we're exceptional, that we're not really part of the animal kingdom. So that's a very deep-seated, unconscious kind of thing. I am not an animal. The other reason which goes along with that is that it's convenient for us to downplay their intelligence because it then it allows us to justify doing some of the things we do to them. So sad. And also, that's a really apt point just about the power dynamic of like, yeah, if you just pretend Absolutely. that they can't be as smart as us, then we don't have to be scared. Yeah, And it certainly cuts us off from being able to learn a little bit more about their sounds and what that might tell us. And this kind of speaks to your work, the Whale Sanctuary Project. Mm, yeah, we want to hear about it. Yeah, well, you know, we've known for a long time now that dolphins and whales do very poorly living in tanks in entertainment parks. The science is in on that. So when you know this, you think to yourself, well, okay, so what can we do about it? So I created the sanctuary, and I wasn't alone in doing that, to create an alternative to keeping these animals in concrete tanks. They can't be taken out of the tanks and dumped in the ocean. So what can we do? We can create the very best scenario for them. Like, you know, 
chimpanzees, elephants, tigers, bears. So a real sanctuary is a way to give back to those animals who we've taken a lot from over the decades. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I mean, I love that you're offering that because I know for a fact many people took so much away from how much has been brought up since the Blackfish documentary came out involving the ethics of tank size and all that. So I think it's so, so awesome, the work that you're doing. And I love that we get to hear about the fact that they are musical also. Like, they have some personality. We love that. Oh, definitely. Right. Thank you again to Dr. Marino for coming on the show, as well as for all the work she's done at the Whale Sanctuary Project. Yeah, seriously, seriously great work. And now to round out the episode, we have David Rothenberg. David, thank you so much for coming here on this podcast to join us and speak to us about what it is that you're doing. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, man, we're happy to have you. Please introduce yourself and what it is you do. My name is David Rothenberg. Some people call me an interspecies musician. I play music with whales and birds and bugs and even plants sometimes. And when I'm not doing that, I'm a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And uh, I've written a lot of books and made some films and recorded lots of music of this type that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm glad to be here. Awesome. That was incredible. (laughs) That was awesome. And so um, you have a very unique and niche kind of market that you are in with your music, right? You are, (laughs) how you said, interspecies musician is how people have referred to it. Uh, Sometimes, yes. I mean, one could say this is a niche form of music, but you could also say that it really represents all music because all music is from one animal to another. And maybe uh, maybe we understand each other, maybe not. Certainly, we've all played with human musicians. We have we don't speak the same language figuratively, actually, but sometimes music can be made by people who cannot really communicate with each other any other way. And I kind of expand that to include uh, birds and uh, whales and try and make music with them. Even though I can't talk to them, I don't know what they're really thinking about, how they live, but music can be made together. I love that. Yeah. I love that. But so how did you get into this then? I would say as a kid, when my parents moved us all from New York City to Connecticut, I kind of was kind of shy, didn't really talk to anybody and wandered around the woods listening to sounds. And I kind of felt at home there when I didn't have to deal with other kids. And then and when I was in high school, I learned there was a musician who lived not so far away named Paul Winter. He's a jazz musician who played with wolves and whales also. And I said, that's kind of cool. So I got to know him and then sort of thought about it for many years before I actually started doing it. And there was another elder figure, the Canadian composer R. Murray Schaefer, who also would compose whole symphonies to be performed in the wilderness by a whole orchestra out on a, on a lake canoeing and trombonists sitting in pine trees. And, and this guy also pioneered the study of the soundscape. We could listen to soundscapes like we study landscapes, but we just hear what's out there. I began to realize there was a small but dedicated group of people around the world doing various versions of this kind of stuff. This is a very, very, very cool thing that we're learning about right now. Thank you. I mean, you mentioned some before, but what are some of the creatures that you have performed alongside? Well, I think I first did it with birds because birds, many people recognize are making music. We say that birds have songs. 
Some sounds from birds are songs, some are calls. Why do we call these things songs? We kind of recognize they work the way music works. And so I went with my friend Michael Pestel. He was in Pennsylvania, of course, in Pittsburgh, home of the National Aviary. There's this amazing collection of birds out there. And Michael was a professor at the time of art. He said, you got to come play with these birds. And I went there and played along. Before the place opened, it was like 6 a.m. And one particular bird really wanted to play along with me. He was a white-crested laughing thrush. Damn. How do you play with that uh, bird? I'm walking around the aviary. I hear birds going, and I'm playing my clarinet. As if I'm with a bunch of musicians. I can't talk to them. They don't speak my language, but they're making music. Maybe I could fit in. I like doing that with human musicians, too, from all over the world. <laughs> and so with birds, like, oh, oh, this one bird really started to get interested. I said, hmm, that's kind of cool. And that's when I realized you actually could learn something by playing live with birds. So that was the beginning of this journey. Started with the laughing thrush, took me to Australia to meet probably the greatest of all singing birds, the superb lyre bird, L-Y-R-E, bird, named after his tail shaped like a lyre, this harp that they played in ancient Greece. This is like the super bird, looks like a peacock, is like a cartoon character. You may know the most popular clip of any David Attenborough BBC Nature series is the film of this lyre bird. The very same one I played with, actually. The exact same one. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, I mean, did you use your clarinet or was it another instrument? I played clarinet. The clarinet is a very versatile instrument. It can go a lot with birds, but possibly flutes are even better. I also play other things. I play the iPad, playing electronic sounds. That's also useful, particularly with insects. I play a lot with insects, most famously 17-year cicadas. A lot of people think it's just noise, but I would say it's the most classical music out there. What animals are doing has been around for millions of years before there were humans on this planet. This is the oldest music we know. There must be something right about it if it's lasted this long. Like, who knows if anything human is going to last that long, as long as a Katie did singing or a nightingale, or a robin even, any bird, you know, they've been around a long time, so we ought to respect them. We ought to respect what they're doing. And how do you adjust your, your playing, or your learning, or your listening when you're playing with these different creatures or animals? How do you adjust? How do you prepare? That's a good question. I think if I try and learn what their whole aesthetic sense is. Like even Charles Darwin knew that birds liked music. They appreciated beauty. And he wrote that birds have a natural aesthetic sense, which means they know what's right for them. And each species has their own way of doing things. And you can learn what that is by spending time with them. And of course, they don't need any humans making music with them. They don't need human music, but they're interested in sounds and they can sometimes be very interested in what they hear a human musician play. And it's not just me playing clarinet. I bring other people in playing all kinds of other instruments who try and play together with these birds and honestly learn from them. Also, it's much more fun for me to be out in the wilds making music with animals where they live. But of course, I also take their sounds, record them and manipulate them and do that kind of activity. And I also teach students to do that because it's so fun. But that's, I think, much less interesting than really going out there and being in that world of animals where you, you don't necessarily belong, or you're not used to being, and get out of your human comfort zone to this new world. What's the furthest you've gone out, 
like to play with the species? Maybe like the furthest out of our civilized comfort zone that you've gone? Probably to Arctic Russia in 2006, when I went to play with beluga whales in Karelia, which is a part of Russia nobody ever hears about. It's north of St. Petersburg and east of Finland. And we went to the White Sea. And there I met all these Russian scientists. And we sat there and made music with the whales. And later I visited them in Moscow and learned all this stuff about Russian beluga science. And, and beluga whales are very curious about people. They're like big dolphins. They come out of the water and make noise and such. They're very interactive with us. And that, but previously, I'd practiced in an aquarium in Chicago at the Shedd Aquarium, and you could get belugas to make very specific sounds similar to what the clarinet could do. And some of those exact sounds was what I heard with the wild belugas in Russia. So what about when you perform live for a human audience? Uh, do you use recordings? Do you bring the audience out in nature with you? How does that look? Both of those things, I'm traveling around Europe right now, we're doing concerts live with birds. And so first I started in Slovenia and we did one evening concert and that was by a beautiful lake, Lake Czernicka. And that was uh, a lot of frogs were singing in the lake in the evening and birds came out and we had a harpist from Portugal, a singer from Slovenia and me. And together we, we spent several days rehearsing how did we rehearse? We just imagined what we might do with birds, played some bird sounds and talked a lot. And then the, we did that concert. And then another morning we got up at dawn. We really got up at 3 a.m. and left at 3.30 and drove 40 minutes to this uh, big meadow. We actually hauled the harp about 30 minutes across the fields to this spot that was perfect as the sun was coming up. Nightingales were still singing from nighttime and all kinds of blackbirds and different European thrushes and other birds. And, you know, European birds sound a lot more like classical music than American birds. You can see and hear how this music of Bach, Beethoven, Mahler, all, all Messian, all evolved in these particular birds making certain sounds. It's remarkable to hear that. I've done some other events with poetry, particularly poetry from Iran and Persia, which is all about nightingales and emotion, love and birds. Like there's a whole tradition. Nightingales are all over Persian poetry. Lately, I've been playing concerts with underwater pond creatures. People don't know that a pond makes such cool sounds. You get a hydrophone, you drop it down, and there's a whole world that already sounds like electronic music. You don't have to do anything to it. Give wow. us some uh, some tips to listen and learn from nature. Uh, the first thing is to stop talking. Be silent. Clear your mind out. Go out in the woods. You can be anywhere. Go out in the street. You, nature is right here in the city. Go outside. The traffic's here. There are people, but there's also other sounds that come from animals. And can you always tell what's a human sound, what's a non-human sound? If you can, try and figure out what that is. And try and figure out what these animals are doing. If it sounds like music to you, if it's a bird singing, why is it singing? What is musical exactly? Do you hear a rhythm? Do you hear a beat? Do you hear a melody? Do you hear emotions? Do you hear feelings? We, we feel like we humans believe that music carries emotion and can express emotions that can be said no other way. The talking about them, turning them into words is not the same as what the music conveys. 
are these other sounds conveying the same thing, even though they're being made by other species? And then if you feel inspired to join in, do so very slowly, carefully. Leave a lot of space for the other musicians in the forest, in the street, in the field. Don't fill in all the sonic space. You fill in your own niche among the ecological possibilities that other species are there for. Maybe they don't need you. They probably don't want you there. Make them want you there by just enjoying the dialogue and the interaction. And that's how you get uh, animals to realize that we might be able to live together on this planet. We're not going to be destroying each other. That's the secret. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the planet as a whole, do you feel that climate change has affected some of the sonic soundscapes that you've kind of encountered over the years? Like, can you hear a difference? Yeah. Uh, well, one story I have to tell is the other day I was playing with the pond sounds in, in Brooklyn with this great Swiss bass clarinet. It's named Shah. We had two bass clarinets. He's a famous guy. We're playing with the pond sounds and this bird appears. <laughs> and he goes, what's that? I go, you know, I, I'm embarrassed. I confess, I don't know what it is. It looks like a mutant cormorant. <laughs> We're in Brooklyn in Prospect Park. There's alligators in this lake. Like anything can be here. So I'm sorry, I don't know what it is. And the other day in the New York Times, there was a front page story about this bird, which was an anhinga, otherwise known as a water turkey that lives like in Florida and Georgia. And they're starting to fly up to New York, just showing you climate change. The warmer planet is making the birds change. So certainly a warmer planet changes the ecology that also changes the acoustic ecology. And so you're getting different creatures, different sounds, different moods. So yeah, climate change is, is affecting everything about what's going on in nature. And I don't know if how my work is going to help us do any more about this, except anything that connects people more to nature makes us appreciate how much we're interconnected with nature. We better do something. That's not small That's at all. Huge. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Very huge. Yeah. That's important. Wonderful. Wow. Well, thank you for everything. I mean, this was, that was awesome. This is super <laughs> that was so cool, cool what you do. It's been wonderful chatting with you and thank you so much. Oh yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, David, for sharing your story and music with us. All right. So, Bay, as a musician, if you were going to take a page from David's book and make a song with an animal species, mm. what creature do you think is going to compliment you the best? I, I don't know about complimenting me, but uh, an animal that I absolutely would make a song with? A wolf. Ooh. Oh, my God. That's such a good answer. You know? Howling at the moon? That's a... Okay. Damn, that... Throw some auto-tune on it? I would listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so be sure to join us next week for the penultimate episode of this season when we learn all about the science of musical performance. From singing to jazz improvisation to elementary school class concerts, we've got you covered. So I didn't only teach notes and words to songs. I taught, this is how we make a line. This is how the line moves to the stage. This is how we step up onto the choir risers. Here's how to stand safely on choir risers. I tried to teach them to look like you belong there. Look like you belong on a stage. Look like you are a performer. So make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you listen. Subscribe to So Curious so that you do not miss out on next week's episode. I know life gets busy and you might forget. 
hit the subscribe button. It will not let you forget. And please leave us a five-star review if you like what you're hearing. It goes a huge way for a podcast like ours so we can get out this awesome message to people. Thank you all so much for being here. See you next week. Go Birds. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Montefusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist. And Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mixing engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. Thanks. Thank you. See ya.